Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Buffalo Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by none other than the lovely people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is that perfect little website for your horror needs in terms of pop culture. If you're looking for news, reviews, top ten lists, interviews, retrospectives, whatever you want, they have it. So go check them out right now. I don't have a whole lot of housekeeping for you today, to be completely honest. We might just get right into it, but I am going to let you in on a little secret that I mentioned either last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago, maybe even both, that I am working on another project. It is called By the Candle's Light, and it will be a storytelling podcast. I have a bunch of short stories that I've written over the course of the years, and I'm turning them into a little audio drama style thing. Without dialogue, it's just going to be me reading these stories in a sort of creepy kind of voice, I guess. And you can look for that to be released, I'm guessing, I want to say around Halloween is when I'm going to throw that out there. I'll do a little bit of a lead up in the weeks prior to, so you can keep an eye on social media and all that kind of stuff. And I'll let you know in later casts when that's going to go up as well. Other than that, we are going to continue on with our tour of the eerie United States of America. Last week we looked at Colorado, and that means this week we are going to be looking at Connecticut. Now, Connecticut is one of those states that has been around for quite a while. It's one of the eastern seaboard states, you could call it, and those were one of the first populated by the colonists. So it's one of the older locations, anyway. I'm not too familiar with the history, exact history, the political history, whatever you want to call it, of the state itself, but it does have a very dark history in terms of a little supernatural being you may be familiar with called witches. Now there was one witch in particular, and that is going to be the topic really of this podcast, but I do want to go into the history of witches in Connecticut. And it turns out that it does have a very old and rich history. And I use the term rich very loosely. Now many people associate witch trials and witch burnings and witch executions with Salem which by many rights, you would be correct. That's not an incorrect statement by any stretch. It's one of the most well-documented, most famous cases of witches in history. But Connecticut does predate it by about 30 years. Now, Connecticut did have its own witch trials back in the 1600s, precisely from 1647 to 1663. It is one of the largest witch hunts in history as well, and it was the first large-scale one in American history. John M. Taylor lists approximately 37 cases of accused witches or witchcraft, and 11 of which resulted in execution. The execution of Else Young of Windsor in the spring of 1647 was the beginning of the witch panic in the area, which would not ultimately come to an end until the 1670s with the release of Catherine Harrison. Now, as with any sort of history going on that far back, it's hard to keep track of everything that went on. 
There's history written by certain people who may or may not be completely honest in their tellings of the tale. As we all know, history is written by the quote-unquote winner of whatever the conflict was. Now, with that said, there is a lot of documentation missing from the era, including accusations, trials, and executions. In the words of Benjamin Turnbull in his 1880 History of Connecticut, it may possibly be thought a great neglect or matter of partiality that no account is given of witchcraft in Connecticut. The only reason that is, after the most careful researches, no indictment of any person for that crime, nor any process relative to that affair can be found. Now, despite this, there's enough existing evidence to gain an insight into the culture of witchcraft and the trials at the time. In the early days of the trials, Reverend Samuel Stone of Hartford and Joseph Haynes of Wethersfield and Samuel Hooker of Farmington served on a quote-unquote prosecutional tribunal, which contradicted the traditional idea that prosecutors should remain skeptical and immune to public pressure to convict. As was the popular belief at the time, the magistrates of Connecticut relied on evidence of, quote, the devil's involvement in infecting harm, unquote, to secure conviction of witchcraft, but such evidence could easily be found through, again, quote, battering interrogations. There were some key figures at play during the time as well, including that name we mentioned before, Alce Young. She was the first person executed for witchcraft, not only in Connecticut, but likely in the whole of America and the colonies at the time. On May 26th, 1647, she was executed in Hartford. Her execution was recorded in the journals of John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay, and Matthew Grant, the second town clerk of Windsor. There are no further surviving records on Young's trial or specifications on the charges that were laid against her. Around the time of the trial, an influenza epidemic occurred throughout the New England area, including her hometown of Windsor, which may have influenced the accusations against her. Young was likely married or related to John Young of Windsor and may have been eligible to inherit his property, which may have made her an even more attractive target. Another key player was Mary Johnson, and Mary Johnson was the first recorded confession of witchcraft. She worked as a house servant and was accused of theft in 1648. After extensive torture and interrogation, Johnson confessed to familiarity with the devil. That was in quotes. She also confessed to having sexual relations with men and devils, and to murdering a child. Her execution was delayed as she was pregnant during her imprisonment in Hartford. Johnson was indeed eventually executed, though, on June 6, 1650. Along with the major players of the fiasco known as the witch trials at any point in time, not just Connecticut witch trials, but the witch trials in general were, well, just that. They were witch hunts. There were some major sites involved. These players needed a stage in order to act out their play. The first one we have here was already mentioned, and that was Wethersfield. During the 1650s, several people were tried for witchcraft through the Connecticut area. In Wethersfield, Joan and John Carrington were executed in 1651. They were prominent members of the Wethersfield community before being accused of witchcraft. Wethersfield was also home to Mary Johnson, the first open confessor of witchcraft, and Catherine Harrison. This resulted in the coining of the term Wethersfield Witches by historians. 
Naturally, Hartford is going to play a role too, and in 1662 and 63, the town of Hartford saw a surge in witch hysteria. A series of accusations were made amongst the town folk. The first accusation was by Anne Cole, who accused Rebecca Greensmith and Elizabeth Seeger of tormenting her through magic. The parents of Elizabeth Kelly accused Goody Ayers of using black magic to kill their daughter. Other claims of black magic from Hartford were more peculiar. One person claimed Satan caused her to speak with an accent. Others said her neighbors transformed into animals at night. Catherine Branch, servant to the Westcott family, suffered from a series of fits and other instances that Daniel Westcott described as beyond nature, like elevating above her bed. A minister from a neighboring village claimed Branch's afflictions were the result of her declining to join a witch coven. From Hartford, four people were executed for the crime of witchcraft. Nathaniel Rebecca Greensmith, Mary Sanford, and Mary Barnes were all hung in 1662. Elizabeth Seeger was accused of witchcraft, but the charges were dropped due to weak evidence. Now, by the end of 1663, the witchcraft trials in Hartford were beginning to wind down, due in no small part to the return of the governor of Connecticut, John Winthrop Jr. Winthrop was generally regarded as New England's quintessential adjudicator of witchcraft cases, due not only to his status as the son of the governor of Massachusetts, but also to his first-hand knowledge of natural magical practices associated with alchemy, a mystical form of chemical experimentation. Because of his experience with alchemy, and having seen John Dee and Robert Flood, two major influences in Winthrop's studies, stand against false accusations of witchcraft, Winthrop often involved himself in witchcraft cases to ensure that the accused were not executed. His return and involvement in the trials ushered in a period of increasing skepticism towards accusations of witchcraft, and in 1669, it was Winthrop's court that established that multiple witnesses needed to bear witness to the same act of witchcraft simultaneously. This significantly stemmed the flow of accusations, and despite a minor panic during the Salem Crisis later, no witches were executed in Connecticut after Catherine Harrison's release in 1670. Now, there has been some aftermath to this, of course. Of course there's going to be, because people can't let history be history. On October 6, 2012, descendants of the executed petitioned the Connecticut government to posthumously pardon the victims. But the motion was not passed. In 2007, A.D. Avery communicated with the British government in an attempt to acquit the convicted witches. A.D. Avery was the descendant of Mary Sanford, who was executed for quote, dancing around a tree while drinking liquor, unquote. Avery has also been involved in many theatrical performances about the Connecticut witch trials, like The Witching Hour. On February 6, 2017, the town of Windsor unanimously passed a resolution to symbolically clear the names of the town's two victims, Alice Young and Lydia Gilbert. A documentary about the passage of this resolution, entitled Delayed Justice, Windsor Atones for its Witchy Trial, History, produced through Windsor Community Television, can be accessed through internet archives. Several individuals arranged memorial services for the victims of the witch trials in Windsor in June of 2017. The memorial for Connecticut's witch trial victims marked the 370th anniversary of Alce Young's execution. So now that we have a history of the Connecticut witch trials and witches in Connecticut, we can fast forward 
a little while anyway, to the late 1700s into the mid-1800s, where a witch surfaced once again in Connecticut. In the town of Monroe, there was a woman who was born in 1783. For most of her life, she remained very quiet, kind of shy, not really a social person. At some point in her time, she married a man by the name of Captain Joseph Hovey, and she became Hannah Hovey. Hannah was a witch, or supposedly a witch. Now, not much is known about her prior to her accusations and the legend that surrounds her, but what is known is that her legend does indeed live on. Now, apparently, it wasn't until after her husband died of somewhat mysterious causes that she became a little more strange, a little more peculiar to the townsfolk. Many believe she even played a part in her husband's demise. Now, it is noted that her husband was probably a fair bit older than she was, but still, he was a captain, and in such, he died by falling off a cliff one night while going for a walk. Many people found that to be a little suspicious, but nobody could prove anything and such. Nothing was ever charged or laid against Hannah. But once he died, things got a little bit weird. While she never was the most well-liked or popular person in the town, most people just kind of let her be. Except she started to beg for food. And when she was refused, she would supposedly throw a curse on the person. A neighbor was a perfect example. She went over and asked for a freshly baked pie. And this neighbor was known in the town for baking pies and being a fabulous baker in general. Now, there are some reports that vary differently on what actually transpired. She was either given the smallest pie or denied a pie in general. And so she laid on a curse where the woman would never be able to bake again. And from that day forth, her baking was never as good. And she eventually just gave up on the activity altogether. Strange coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. Another tale tells of a man who was fishing on her land. She discovered this man fishing and, again, put a curse on him, saying that he will never catch another fish ever again. And that is precisely what happened. He never caught another fish ever again. Her house was located on a hill called Craig Hill, and it was allegedly guarded by snakes. Which sounds a little urban legendy to me, but I mean, to be fair, if she's a witch, maybe she does have some power over the serpents. She was also accused of having a familiar, and if you're not sure what a familiar is, it is pretty much an animal companion. Now these are faithful to the witch and do deeds, and depending on who you talk to, have magical spirits or entities attached to them as well. Some call them demons in animal form that the witch has summoned to be their friend for life. And she had a mean old rooster always by her side. One account does say that she was overheard telling a neighbor, or a town's member anyway, that her rooster had just died. She also went on to explain that her death would soon follow. They were connected in sort of spiritual sense, and when one went, the other was bound to go soon after. And precisely, that is what happened. It wasn't long after that her rooster died, that she too died. And it was her request that she be buried within the day, after sunset. And the townsfolk said, sure, yeah, why not? And that did not happen. They threw her body on a cart and decided to wheel her through the woods in the middle of the day to drop her in a grave. But some strange things happened. 
course they did. It's reported that the casket that carried her body continuously slipped off of the cart that was dragging her along through the woods, and oftentimes would get stuck in the snow. So despite the townsfolk not really giving a damn about her wishes, she got her way anyway, for she wasn't buried until after sundown due to all the delays caused by her casket continuously falling off of the cart. Now you may think that her grave would be difficult to find, and that being an urban legend it wouldn't be easy to just walk up and look at it. Well, you'd be wrong. Apparently her grave is still in a cemetery in the Monroe area, and you can easily find it. There's even maps and directions on certain websites that will tell you her exact resting place, from row to column. It's very interesting. Her legend does live on over the years, and some people do say that her spirit does wail at night, and the typical fare in terms of, you know, spirit hauntings in a cemetery. It should be noted that while her name was Hannah Hovey by marriage, her tombstone does indeed read Hannah Crana wife of Captain Joseph Hovey. Now, I was never able to really find where the name Crana came from. I just assumed it was a rhyme, Hannah Crana, and, you know, that typical childish sort of fare. But despite all these accusations and being in the kind of the height of the Salem witch trials at that time, she was never tried or even brought in on charges of witchcraft. She would apparently even spell out that she was putting a curse on a person, and nobody ever did a damn thing about it. Maybe it was because the town was too small, nobody really cared, they didn't have the resources. It's hard to say. But she died at the ripe old age of 77 from natural causes. Or because her spirit animal, her familiar, died first, and it was her time to go right after. Nevertheless, that does bring us to the end of our look at Connecticut on our creepy tour through the United States. It's always interesting how we get from point A to point B. I started this Connecticut look at just an urban legend. I wanted to find something creepy and spooky that just happened in Connecticut, nothing else. And I found this whole history on the witch trials that took place there that even predate Salem. It's kind of fascinating. Just want to throw that in there. So until next week when we continue our tour, something to look forward to next Friday.